Thank you for joining us. This is Paul Wilson. And Chris Emke. You're listening to the Diesel Performance Podcast. Don't point at me like that, Paul. You always lead the way. What are we talking about today? So it's L5P week. It's L5P um, week, yep. You and Nick were out in California a couple years ago, uh, kind of saw the L5P before the L5P was the L5P, and yeah. all the hype was here. And one of the cool things that he had, that Gail had over at his facility was an engine dyno. And you guys were able to watch the engine on the engine dyno. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So it was really cool. Now this is an L5P that was running one of Banks's standalone ECUs and a, a different fuel injection system. So this is the same engine package they were putting into the JLTVs. Yeah. Okay. Um, but when we got to see it, we actually watched very meticulously measured of what happened as you added timing, what happened as you added fuel. Wasn't it like one degree or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. we literally got to watch little incremental changes and see how that made an impact. It was a really awesome video. Uh, but the rebroadcast that we're bringing you today is actually an old episode we did over the phone first okay. with, with Gail Banks. So me, Danny Voss, and Nick Pregnitz got to get on the phone with Gail Banks and go through, well, his his helpers told us like we got 30 minutes with him and I want to say we took about 90. Wow. So this is a little bit longer of an episode for you guys. Uh, but it was really cool because not only did we talk about the L5P in a very kind of broad sense, we also talked about dynos and how you could take a truck and dyno it on one dyno in Illinois and go dyno it in California and actually get the same number. I know people don't think that's possible, and we, we, I've, you and I have both been on the phone with customers and been like, yeah. hey, man, one dyno to a next, you could end up with totally different numbers. Yeah. But if your operators and owners are calibrated together and they're, they're in sync with each other, you absolutely can get repeatable results. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of what we talked about in this episode. So I think it's really cool to kind of bring that back into light because you are going to start to see – crazy dyno numbers yeah. with people right now with L5P because yeah. they're going to throw them on different dynos. They're going to run different tests. They're going to have different test windows. And there's there's nothing really standardized about it. So as you see results from different shops, there's going to be a lot of variation. There's only so much of a window, you know, turbocharger, fuel injector. Um, but I can just say speculation so far, there's only a couple guys that are, you know, showing dyno numbers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. baseline and power over stock, and they're similar. They're not exact. You yeah. know, a little little difference, a little skewed, but, you know, you go off of data, you go off of facts. And that's it, and man. Control testing to the best of your ability. So, And there's nobody better at controlling testing than, than Gail Banks, in my experience. <laughs> Hell no. So let's, let's let you guys uh, kick over and listen to the good stuff. This is Gail Banks with L5P and Dynos. Guys, today I'm so excited. We have Gail Banks back on the phone. Gail, how are you today? I'm doing good today. Thank you. Absolutely. We're so excited to get you back on. The The comments we're getting back on Facebook based off of your first episode were just awesome. So many guys with a ton of questions about the L5P, I think is probably our biggest kind of query there. Absolutely. Sure. And then, of course, we talked about uh, wanting to get into talking or discussing dinos a little bit further and mm -hmm. mad versus bad if we have some time here. So I thought we'd roll out. I did a little research. I know you were scared about scooping um, scooping GM. I did find GMAuthority.com currently has the L5P listed 445 horsepower, 900 foot-pounds of torque. So that's at least 910. 910. That's, that's what they're rating it at. Since I've been involved with the development of the engine, and not just the L5P, but our relations started a relationship with GM on this engine 
family uh, started about 2004 and uh, with the uh, LLY at that time. The whole thing came out of us doing a, well, it actually came out of a race uh, venture that we did. Uh, the LLY did? <laughs> yeah, it came it came out of a Cummins deal that I did. I mean, we may have talked about in the last podcast the record that we set at Bonneville with that at two twenty two was our was our best mile. The Navy uh, wanted to develop a new diesel marine engine uh, for special forces use, and they they were looking at the Cummins and others, and uh, read an article. We got a lot of press on that Dakota. It was massive press. Uh, they read an article somewhere, and their their power number was 700 horsepower, and their torque number was like 1,050 pound-feet. And it had to go, go through a really rigorous uh, test procedure, 800-hour uh, test, at 85% of which is at wide-open throttle. And we talked about this last time, and Navy... Navy got a hold of me and said, we want to build a marine, marine engine. Can you base a marine engine off that record engine in the truck? And then I said, yeah. But having decades and decades now, coming on 60 ex- years ex- experience building marine engines, I knew this <laughs> This was a lot harder test uh, than building something to drag race or to, to do a 20-second or so uh, truck pull. Sure. In other words, 800 hours is 33 days of dyno. You need a good dyno <laughs> to go 33 days. Yeah, wear a dyno out before By the engine, way, right? you, you, you don't do that on a, on a something that uh, normally does a three-second sweep. Yeah. <laughs> so... We went to Texas to Southwest Research Institute and met there uh, all the all, all the what you call stakeholders in the deal on this marine engine and we tore down a Duramax uh, and a Cummins and laid them out on tables and if you looked at the components you kind of you know the Dur- Duramax was highly reminiscent of a lot of big block Chevy stuff I had done in the past. Sure. And the Cummins was what it was. It was originally a tractor engine. Uh, the 5.9 was a joint venture, kind of, between Cummins and J.I. Case. And uh, there's, the last time I looked at one of the cylinder blocks, the tractor mounting provisions were still there. <laughs> uh, you know, the thing originally was going to be, I don't know, I t- I'll take a wild guess, 135 horsepower. Sure, yeah, it's a and, cast iron uh, dinosaur. And being, a, being, a, being a, out in the field doing work, uh, which they did. This thing's come a long ways. I mean, the, the Cummins come a long ways, but the parts, when you just the connecting, connecting rods, when you compared the connecting rod, rods, what it was, you looked at the Cummins part and you went durability plus, you know, um, and what t- turned out not to be durable uh, was the block itself. And in other words, to make that kind of power and make it for 800 hours, uh, that would be a double NATO test. A NATO test is normally 400 hours. Uh, 
you had to you're you're, you're upping the cylinder pressure uh, and you're doing doing it for 33 days. Uh-huh. Uh, so so what we found uh, close to 300 hours in. Uh, as I recall, it was a number three and the number five cylinders. We were tearing the deck deck off the top of the cylinder. By that I mean, at the top of the water jacket, a crack formed uh, into the cylinder. So when you viewed it in the cylinder, it was this crack of about three eighths of an inch down the bore that went horizontally around. And when that crack occurred, well, then now you're blowing combustion into the water jacket and water into the cylinder. Uh, so we t- what happened was it's the cycling of cylinder pressure over about 300 hours uh, at or near 700 horsepower or over 1,000 pound-feet of torque tore the top off the block. Jesus. Now, you have to understand, we're, if the original power output intent was up, 130 to 150 horsepower, let's say. We were, you know, way beyond that. It's got like four or five times the design uh, horsepower of, of the cylinder block. So these things are to be expected. Uh, we sawed one of the blocks in half, and we discovered it at the top of the water jacket, the... Uh, the foundry core that was used to form the water jacket had a square corner. In other words, no radius, uh, which which added to the problem. So we got the guys in, uh, I think those were ran down in Brazil, uh, those castings. We got the guys in the foundry to hand file those cores and put radius at the top of the water jacket, inside the water jacket. Uh, that radius would be uh, progressing from the cylinder wall to the underside of the uh, cylinder deck. Just to give you a little and, bit uh, And those blocks lasted, once again, uh, the numbers are fuzzy, but it got us closer to 500 hours. So it was a good move, but still no cigar. They still failed in the same place, ultimately. So compacted graphite iron, CGI, uh, was coming online back then and being used quite a bit in Europe uh, for high output gasoline and for diesel. Uh, so they poured 50 CGI uh, blocks. The guys at Cummins had, hadn't had any experience at, at that point. As I recall, they sent the blocks over to Case or somebody like that to uh, get them machined somebody who was already doing CGI. And um, the first two, the cylinder walls got kind of screwed up a little. Uh, I still have those blocks. All I, you know, you could do a cleanup bore and run them. I never have. Uh, but the compacted graphite block uh, did the deed, made it, made it happen. So... Everybody was happy. Turned out to be a good marine engine. They're, to my knowledge, they're deployed all over the world. And uh, just a, a real f- fun time to do another marine engine, especially a diesel at that time. 
and oh, by the way, we're going to do a marine version of the L5P. Oh, really? Oh my God, I'm I'm pumped out of my mind just thinking about it. <laughs> that is awesome. uh, More horsepower when you go to the marine application, then? Well, you know, a while a while back, I did a super turbo version of uh, LMM. Uh, the uh, LMM-based marine engine. Um, yeah, we saw that with the so, screw blower on it and the turbocharger. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I used a screw blower and uh, two turbos. In fact, no, check that. I used the 2300 bro- uh, uh, rotating group, the Eaton, uh, that they use on the, you know, the, the most badass uh, Corvettes and what have you, uh, or were using. They, they've now, now got a little more refined version of the same blower. Yeah. But we used a, a 2300 and then a, a pair of, uh, so, so it was a compound. You know, the blower and the turbos were compounded in series. Right. So it was yep. Pretty good deal. Uh, with conventional turbocharged marine engines, it's like driving out uh, of the hole in overdrive. No, in other words, you put the truck in sixth if you have a manual transmission, and then try to drive away with a full load in a trailer. Yeah, there's a true spool-up test, right? <laughs> That's kind of, yeah. It's the worst spool-up situation you could possibly imagine. These boats have no transmissions. Right. It's not that they couldn't have transmission. We, we, we were putting C6 uh, automatic, automatics in, in twin-turbocharged ski boats out here. 35, 40 years ago. So putting an automatic in a boat is not a new subject, but right. when you put put the kind of torque output that we were doing, uh, it killed the automatic transmission. Well, can I so, ask why not just run a compound set of turbos instead of a turbo to blower when you're in the marine application? Like what was the benefit of the blower as opposed to just having two turbos? Positive displacement. Uh, I can... I can set the blower overdrive uh, such that, you know, turbos are centrifugal uh, uh, compressors. Right. Uh, roots or the, the, the Eaton version of the roots or especially screw blowers uh, give you pressure. I, I mean, we have boosted idle. Yeah. In the boat. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, he's really turning a 400 cubic inch engine into a 600 cubic engine. Yeah, I, I actually set up the overdrive. Uh, we finally re- resolved the boosted. You can get too much boosted idle. By that, I mean the air-fuel ratio in the diesel uh, is so lean that the engine just shuts off. I mean, you're still injecting fuel, mind you, but uh, I have, you're, so I had excess air at idle. We set up a valve mechanism uh, to vent off boost air at idle, okay. and we're doing that in our dragster as, as well as, as the dragster program evolves. Uh, I'm going to use the L5P for the dragster program. Uh, I got two long cars. I got a, a top dragster, which is, which is like a 278-inch wheelbase uh, slip joint uh, Spitzer car, and also, I've got a uh, streamliner, uh, which which was a hardtail. Uh, we're putting rear suspension in the streamliner right now. This is a Bonneville car. Right. Uh, 
the car's been uh, 382 uh, with 1,200 horsepower in it. It's incredibly... It's like the profile of a streamlined motorcycle, Bonneville uh, motorcycle, a uh, little bit wider and an extra wheel at each end. In other words, the track width of this car is about the width of an engine. Uh, <laughs> or your shoulders, you know. Yeah. If, you're, if you're a weightlifter, maybe it's the width of your shoulders. The, 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 the whole deal is, the whole deal is that the English have the record at 350, uh, the JCB car, which, which was a two-engine all-wheel drive setup, and the engines were following the architecture of the JCB uh, industrial engine, but Ricardo, uh, an English company that designs engines uh, and other powertrain items, Ricardo uh, did a racing engine version of it. So you have 10 liters of 5 liters front, 5 liters rear of pure race motor. Jesus. They went 350. That's their world record for diesel at Bonneville. Hmm. Well, I've got a little streamliner that's been 380. Uh, I think with the L5P-based uh, setup uh, and, the, and, and, the, and the right cylinder heads, uh, which will prob- probably come from a young man in uh, southern Indiana uh, who's gaining fame for his cylinder heads. Uh, I assume you're talking about Wagler performance there. I was going to say in a big yeah. way, especially after SEMA, huh? Yeah, yeah. Jeremy's, Jeremy's a very cool, inventive young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, good friend. So, in fact, he's... Uh, gifted me with a set of heads for the uh, dragster program. Uh, unfortunately, they won't bolt to the... Uh, I need two more head bolts. Yeah, that was, our, that was uh, our question there, is how does that work on the L5P? I thought there was some different architecture. Well, there. I could make it work. Uh, I, I, I'd love to have the two corner head bolts. That, you know, there's there's two more head bolts on an L5P than any previous engine. Okay. Um uh, Two so, per head or one on each? One on each end of each head. Okay. They're the upper row of the smaller bolts. Okay. Uh, there were none on the ends of the cylinder head. There are now bolts there. Gotcha. So we want to go, we wanna, we're going for 400, uh, but we're, my car's a hot rod. It's just, uh, in fact, when it went 382, it had a 53 DeSoto in it, uh, which is a little Hemi um, version of the bigger Chrysler uh, at the time. So cast iron heads, cast iron block, yeah, 1271 yeah. blower, and a dose of nitro over alcohol. And you went uh, how fast in that? 382. Whew. So, so... So one L5P in this Bonneville car, or two? Yeah, it'd be the same layout. And yeah. In fact, we the thing had a non-locking torque converter and a turbo hydro uh, wow. behind the uh, the little Hemi. Turned wow. the Hemi 8,800 RPM. Yeah. So Charlie Markley did the engine, uh, and and the Markley brothers are legendary at Bonneville with those older Chryslers. They're just cool guys. 
It's a cool engine. So, wasn't a Banks engine at all. Uh, you know, basically, I inherited the car from Hoffman and Markley, the, the guys that were running it back in the day. And I'm, I'm actually pretty much through the chassis way. <laughs> it just wasn't, uh, you know, the torque, torque I want to put through the chassis is now much, much, much higher. And, uh, yeah, you're oh, I want the RPM there. Yeah. Yeah. And the roll cage, there's I'm changing everything, but the bottom line is I'm not changing the external shape of the car, except, except for a little nuance on the nose, uh, it had about a quarter of an inch of nose lift uh, above about 350 miles an hour. I don't want any nose lift. If anything, I want it to press down slightly. So we're changing the nose to affect that aerodynamically. Nice. And uh, anyhow, I want to go 400 with a diesel. I want to do it with a hot rod, two-wheel drive, single engine, you know, yeah. a basic hot rod diesel built to last... Uh, five miles at wide open throttle, and then doing it uh, world record, you, you've got to turn around within one hour and, and come back. Back it up. Uh, mm-hmm. So you got to, it's 10 miles of wide open throttle uh, within an hour. Oh, so like a normal daily drive to work. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> hey, right so, after a quick word from our sponsor, Gail, we're going to ask you some more questions about the L5P motor and really dive into the dyno stuff. We'll be right back. You got it. We want to give Nick Pregnitz from Calibrated Power a chance to tell you more about custom tractor tuning. If you operate a farm or know someone who does, we think you're going to like what he has to say. We've been talking a lot about our tractor calibrations lately, and it's for a very good reason. We're helping farmers like Warren Newman of Winnebago, Illinois, realize that upgrading through Calibrated Power's tuning makes sense for any operation where the bottom line matters. And you can get these same results for yourself with our Power Manager. In just minutes, you can tune your tractor. There's no downtime, no labor charge like with some of our competitors' products. It's easy to install, but that's not the whole story. Our tractor calibrations work within the manufacturer's powertrain specifications. So unlike our competitors, we don't fool the tractor's computer. It still has full control over the fuel usage and can accurately track fuel usage during operation. Our tuning method delivers calibrated power. The message is in our name. For a given fuel rate, there's an appropriate amount of boost, appropriate amount of timing, fuel pressure, pilot injection, and emission systems performance. When you're using our competitors' products that are simply adding fuel to the mix, you don't get those benefits. You don't get the extra boost. You don't get the extra timing. So you run into long-term reliability issues, piston failures, emission systems failures. There's a reason that the factory uses a calibration to upgrade a tractor through the series. It's because it's the most effective way at managing the combustion parameters. Period. For Warren Newman, it means operating in a higher gear, more than a mile an hour faster, and in a lower rev range. That's efficiency that you can see in action. I used to burn over a half a gallon to the acre, and now I'm burning about a third of a gallon to the acre. So it's made a big change. I mean, you do 300 acres in a day, and you burn, you know, not quite a quarter, but, you know, that makes a lot of difference. Unlike hardware modifications, our calibrations can be easily removed, and the stock calibration can be restored with a simple reflash. Our calibrations have the potential to help any operation with a tractor under load save money and time. 
give us a call today and ask about our tractor tunes and see how they can make a difference in your farming operation. 815-568-7920. The King of Carb is on the show today, Paul. Absolutely. Gail Banks, we're back here with you and Nick. And we were just talking about the L5P, 400 miles an hour is the new goal for top speed record. I mean, the man's got to yep. have some faith in the block here. You know, you're talking <laughs> about the, the Cummins test and about the NATO test and about this thing holding up. I mean, it sounds like the L5P is your weapon of choice moving forward here, Gail. Yeah, you know, actually, we're, we're going to take some laps. The engine program will be the same for our dragster as for Bonneville. Now, normally, I wouldn't do that. What I, well, what I need is a, a, a top dragster that runs low sixes. Um, Everybody I think, needs uh, Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> just, just low sixes. Yeah, he's not great. Well, you know, uh, what's that cat's name out of Indianapolis? It does a really wicked Cummins engines. The Shide Diesel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan Scheid, good guy. Uh, I've talked to him about match racing. Uh, He's he's up for it. Really? Uh, You know, yeah. Run the Duramax against the Cummins. That I would pay to go see. It's like Chevy and Ford. There you you go. There you go. You know, it's it's what the hell. It's a classic battle. So you're talking about a six second pass here with the L5P in this in this. Long wheelbase yeah. car against Dan Scheid, and then yeah, you're talking about a ten I, mile, I, you know, five mile run with the with the Bonneville deal. Yeah, what's the difference is the uh, uh, cooling the pistons, right? Is the big deal, uh, and normally in a drag race engine, uh, I wouldn't be running a gallery cooled piston, but in this case, I would be yeah. uh, because I need a gallery. Uh, the level I want to push the engine, you know, it's 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 still around seven liters, uh, and I want to push real hard. So the gallery cooled piston thing is going to it's either going to be that, uh, you know, you can't do a forged piston with gallery cooling unless right. you do it in two pieces and then electron beam weld it together, uh, and then machine it. That's possible. I, I've also got some pistons, uh, some cats in England made for me uh, that are gallery-cooled forging uh, done a different way. But don't you want to fail? The, don't you want to fail the standard piston first and see uh, see what's the limit? You know, yeah, see how far you can push this thing. Well, I intend to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the coolest you know, videos I think we ever watched was H and S breaking point when they blew up that LML. I mean, they did it in the least scientific way I've ever seen done, but it was <laughs> it was cool to see them push it. You know. Yeah. Well, we I've I've always looked at engine development uh, kind of like uh, a guy who is a test pilot in a fighter aircraft. You you go out and you find the limits. You find the envelope. And then you, you fly within that envelope. Uh, same thing goes for engine development. Uh, I want to know coolant temperature failure. I want to know oil starvation failure points. I want to know piston temperature failure, failure points. There's a lot of things you want to know. But, but my uh, view on engine modification, if it doesn't fail, don't replace it. 
There's lots of guys who buy parts because they don't know where that is or aren't aware that you can go a long ways with stock parts. Preach um, on. We love that mentality. Yeah. I mean, the factory spends a lot of time engineering parts and, and running them through the development cycles, and, I mean, we, well, we should be the, the beneficiaries. <laughs> there's overhead designed into that st- stuff. They don't, they don't run right at the limit. Right. You know, I've seen a Duramax engine that came in back into the plant. There's a guy running a hotshot truck, you know, a one-ton dually, pulling a trailer with three vehicles on it, uh, going across country. He had 980,000 miles on the engine when the guys in Duramax learned of this guy. They offered him a free new engine if they could take his engine and dyno it and examine it. And I was the, I was there at, at Moraine uh, when they tore it down. I mean, there were still hone marks in the cylinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. They dynoed it first, and it made the same torque that it made at the end of the production line when it was new. And it was down a bit on horsepower, probably due to the valve sealing. But yeah. this engine had not been remanufactured. It went damn near a million miles. Was it an LBZ? That's overhead. That's design overhead. <laughs> design overhead. <laughs> Use that term, guys. Yeah, not everybody can do that, but this guy was really <laughs> scrupulous with oil changes, filtration changes, all of that. Yeah, we and see yeah, that. He'd, he'd done some injectors, and he'd done a pump. You, you know, I'm talking right. about the base engine. Right. But uh, there's overheads. And I think there's going to be a lot of overhead in the L5P. The pistons have, uh, prior to machining, uh, they do a laser remelt, remelt of the lip around the combustion bowl. The, if, you, if you will, the radius from the bowl into the deck of the piston. Wow. Uh, you know, the, the top surface. Yeah. And by doing that, you know, that's a place where... Uh, Very common failure where, point. Where you get real eager with injection and you get in your cylinder temperature... You know, guys look at EGT. Well, EGT is just an indication of what happened in the cylinder. Right. It's just a lower value of that same process. And uh, so this makes that rim more resistant uh, to melt. Uh, And then, you know, there's injector targeting. Uh, There's a lot of nuance to this, but... I still like the idea of a steel piston, uh, but I'm not going to. I'm not designing an engine uh, in a racer uh, or a boat to go the equivalent of two or three hundred thousand miles. And uh, I think the guys that designed this engine were thinking of that and much more. Uh, the thing is really uh, starting with a crankshaft. Yeah, I did monster. finish with the prior su- subject, didn't I? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm moving to L5P away from the race application right now. No, uh, is that I mean, okay? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, please. You know, they, they overlap. Okay, so basically the engine uh, design, design, the original engine, engine design, was for a peak firing pressure. Uh, well, I'll, I'll speak to LMM and LML. Peak firing pressure of around 100. 50 bar. Uh, this new engine is a 180 bar design. 
so it's designed for 20% higher peak firing pressure. Now, to achieve that, to achieve that pressure, you, you've got to have more energy in the cylinder to produce it, which means greater heat rejection, greater heat generated during the process. Greater energy might right. be a better way of saying it. So here you've got this engine uh, from a thermal standpoint, a lot more water pump. I'm talking about the coolant water pump. Uh, same impeller diameter, but much deeper uh, veins on the pump. Uh, the, while I'm there, might as well talk about the oil pump. Uh, that's quite a bit more. There is quite a bit more oil pump. The uh, piston cooling nozzles are, by some strange coincidence, and I don't want you guys to get the idea that I fed any ideas to the design group at GM. They everything they did, they did on their own. Okay. Put that uh, in the header, Rich. <laughs> we, we we talked back and forth, but they didn't divulge anything to me that they were doing, um, and uh, that's how it, until until I had a beta engine, and, and then it was all divulged. Right. Um, so, did we get more so oil cooling we, capacity? I mean, how's that? Did we get more cooling capacity on the squirters? Did we get more? You know. Yeah. They're the size we were using in our racing engines prior. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what I, li- I like to do for Marine is uh, they have uh, check valves in them. I don't know if you, you right. guys have seen it. And, and, and the check valve uh, effectively is a flow uh, restrictor. <laughs> uh, and, and the nozzle pressure... Uh, is, no, the oil pressure uh, at the nozzle tip is the engine oil pressure minus the check valve cracking point. So we remove the check valves. Well, if you do that, then your idle oil pressure kind of tanks. Right. Yeah, now, they do have more oil pump. You know, there's more oil pump in these things. Uh, what, what we're doing is... We're, we're, we're doing a program of dampers uh, for Duramaxes uh, that are front-drive capable. By that, I mean they have an 8-bolt uh, drive system or bolt-up uh, on the front of the damper itself. Uh, and we're entering into a... Well, we've had a long, long, long relationship with uh, uh, Horschel, the Horschel brothers, uh, who manufacture viscous dampers for a lot of different engines, uh, yes. uh, both gasoline and now diesel, for a lot of years. And they also supply dampers OEM to, like, John Deere and... Uh, so is this damper Volvo something and others. Um, the, the point being that uh, I want to drive an ex- external oil pump into the other end of the oil gallery of the engine, uh, to provide greater oil flow uh, so that I have uh, idle and low-speed oil pressure I'm looking for. And I'm going to open up the nozzles even further for marine use or um, probably for Bonneville, and that'll that'll, that'll 
find its way back into the dragster engines too. Uh, the cool thing about this uh, viscous damper program is uh, we're entering into a relationship where all the performance dampers for Duramaxes uh, will be designs that we do uh, and manufactured by those guys to uh, our layout. Uh, but we do the damper development here on our uh, engine dynos. Uh, we basically measure the twist in the crankshaft with the engine running at different speeds and loads uh, and with different stroke lengths and, and different piston mass. There's a whole bunch of uh, stuff you enter into to, to come up with what's called the mass elastic uh, diagram of the crankshaft, the damper, uh, the flywheel, the torque converter, or clutch, or whatever's back there. Uh, and then you come up with an initial damper uh, inertial ring, and etc. And uh, then you put it in the engine, you put a laser tachometer on each end of the engine, which gives you crank position. And um, we measure the crank twist, and they, they twist, and then they spring back, by the way. Um, how the much damper, twist? Like, like when you're saying that that the it, it actually twists. I mean, ten thousands, hundred thousand. Well, you measure the twist in degrees. Degree. I'm uh, sorry, in degrees. Uh, you know, like crank rotation in degrees. So I, m my ideal for a durability, a long-term endurance engine, is plus or minus a quarter of a degree. Uh, in shorter duration engine, engines, where you're really popping the cylinder pressure and uh, very high speeds, uh, especially with strokers, uh, where the crankshaft gets fragile uh, due to the stroke length. Right. And, uh, I'll accept a half a degree, maybe five-eighths of a degree, uh, but those engines don't run that long. Uh, but the damper is mission critical. Uh, guys with Duramaxes have been breaking crankshafts for a long time, and... Uh, Never blaming it. Uh, let me check. Let, let me go back a little. We've held, uh, you know, the pro stock truck record for like four years. Uh, we were first into the sevens, and finally, our a seven seventy two was our best pass, and that was back about oh nine. And um, that engine made pretty serious power. It, it came out of a road race program I had with GMC. Uh, where we kept killing the transmissions and the rear ends, and I hadn't found found a I found a good rear rear end solution, but I I had a some racing trans built. But I in waiting for the transmissions, I said let's take the engine out of the out of the road race truck and put it in this in this pro stock truck, a little S10, and uh, we went out and immediately started getting the record and then pushing it down, down, down. And then we st stopped, and a few years later, uh, Wade Moody, uh, initially using some parts he bought from us, he got an S10, and then uh, equaled and finally uh, uh, beat our record, which is cool for Wade. Uh, that record but, seems to get chopped up pretty often. I mean, that record, like, everybody seems to be going after that quarter-mile-an-hour record. I feel like it's pretty often I hear about somebody new sitting on top of that pile. Well, 
Yeah, well, the pro stock truck thing is kind of stopped. Uh, Wade crashed his truck. Mine's sitting in the NHRA museum for the last five or six years. And um, so, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a cool uh, little deal. Uh, I know if if we actually had built a drag race engine, we'd have done uh, quicker ET and a higher speed. Uh, maybe one day we'll do, go back with an L5P-based engine <laughs> in that little truck. Ooh, now uh, we're talking. But the point I wanted to make is all the records that we set, we had the best ET for a Duramax-based race car. I think we're still second best at a 718 with our dragster blowing the transmission going into the lights. <laughs> and then we backed, we backed, we rebuilt the transmission and backed up our run. And, and that, that's... That's it, awesome. I think Comp Diesel has a, a listing of Duramax, quickest Duramax... It's yeah, somewhere out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we're still number two. Oh wow! Uh, we were on top of that list for a number of years mm-hmm. with a th- thing that we we broke. I, what I'm getting at is all that stuff was with stock crankshafts. <laughs> <laughs> we never broke a stock crankshaft, and and we were the guys with the records. So yeah. I know we were, uh, uh, you know, put putting out substantial power. A lot of the crankshaft Why didn't we, failures... we ever break a stock crank, crankshaft? Well, we used viscous dampers that were properly tuned to the crankshaft dynamics. And um, everybody else doesn't. You know, everybody else tends to use... In fact, those 800-hour marine engines, uh, you know, mm-hmm. viscous dampers, same deal. Same, same guys manufactured them for us. So... So they're the ones to call. Anyhow, what I'm getting at is (laughs) guys are changing firing orders, trying to figure out why they're breaking the crank. Uh, And realistically, there might be a subtle difference there, but not a night and day difference. Uh, It's like changing a small small block Chevy uh, to an LS engine's firing order. That's the difference. That's how a, a small block Chevy fires the same cylinder sequence uh, as a Duramax. Right. And uh, the the uh, rearranged firing order that a lot of guys are selling with a camshaft and an injector rewire schematic uh, is basically an LS firing order. But, I don't know, in diesel, everybody has their black magic, it seems. And it's treated that way, but but guys, it's that simple. Small block Chevy versus LS small block Chevy. <laughs> that's a that's a firing cylinder sequence. You can't compare firing orders because because between engines because guys number the cylinders differently. Right. So you got to uh, compare what I call firing se- sequence. This, this yeah. it, 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 in other words, you common up your comparison uh, to the same. You know, I number all the all the engines I'm comparing my own way is what I'm saying. Then they're comparable easily. Uh, but the damper that's being used mostly uh, on these racing or hot rodded diesels 
is an aftermarket damper that uses O-rings for the elastomeric portion of the damper. Well, I'm going to tell you, I can't run elastomeric, stock elastomeric dampers, which have a lot more durability than this racing thing. And, um, you know, the rubber overheats and you're done. But the other part of it is the tune of the rubber and the inertial ring mass on the damper to the crank, the mass elastic uh, diagram of the crank rods, pistons, and all of that jive. What I'm getting down to, if I'm throwing a bunch of buzzwords in the air. I'm trying, <laughs> trying. I, I, I don't want to do that. I, I don't like grandstanding. No, so, no, no, no. I hear you, though. I mean, it, it's a really important, I think, insight into something that we do get a lot of questions about and a lot of guys calling and asking about, you know, should I go to, like, how should I upgrade my crank is what I always hear. I want to billet crank. And right. Absolutely. There's some other yeah. other opportunities out there. I think we also it's, stumbled here, into here's the, here, here Here's the deal. Uh, when, when we were doing our, our damper solution for the L5P, uh, maybe, I don't know, a year ago when we started on that, uh, the whole deal was I, wanna, I, I, I needed a new solution because the crankshaft has changed so much. The crankshaft, uh, by any measure, is 35% stronger. Uh, you know, I, they've upped the cylinder firing pressure, pressure 20%, Ooh. but the crank is another matter. I mean, that thing is... The main bearings are wider, by the way, uh, due to the fact that they've rolled the fillets rather than radiusing the fillets on the, on the crankshaft main and rod journals. Uh, this is something we did back in the oh, early 80s when we were turbocharging the Buick V6s. Uh, that was a rolled fillet solution on the Buick cranks. So it's not new. What's new here is on the on the L5P crank, the, sh- the shape of the fillet that is, is rolled in, uh, or coined, as I like to say, they compress the metal uh, so that the you don't have a radius, you have a dip. Uh, you have the bearing surface, then it dips down, and then it rolls up into the crank cheek. Uh, both on the mains and the rods. What that allows you to do is with the same journal width, you can have wider rod bearings and wider main bearings. So that's bearing surface area. They left the main journal diameter the same on the L5P as the prior engines, uh, but the rod journal um, is about 200 thousandths bigger. I think it's about five millimeters bigger. Um, My big pin cranks that I've I've been making are three millimeters bigger, uh, but I wanted a lighter weight big end on the rod, and I wanted to run the bearing surface speed up to 8,000 RPM. Uh, on the new L5P, they're using a bigger journal, and, a, and of course, on, on the ones I've been doing and the ones that, the production ones, you can't get the rod with that bigger journal bearing uh, it makes the rod big end. If you, you know, conventional rod and cap, the thing gets so wide you you can't put it through the bore to assemble the engine. Right. So they angled the cap. Uh, I angled mine at 40 degrees. They angled theirs, I believe, at 45 degrees. Now with the cap off, 
the big end of the rod will go through the vor, uh, gotcha. just like a Cummins. I mean, yeah, it, yeah same looking rod. An angle, an angle cap rod is no. Nothing it's actually a pain in the ass to evolve and design and evolve and keep it round. And there's, I spent two years on on my solution. It, you know, I, we we created our own bearing size from scratch. Oh wow! Uh, what about the material never, and the hardness of the crank, Gail? Is there any? Do you guys do anything on testing as far as the yeah, the crank? Yeah, compared to the, the LML. The metallurgy of the crankshaft is proprietary to, to General Motors. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the heat treat or hardening as well. But, but there's a fine balance. All right, let me finish telling you about that radius, that rolled fillet around the... Uh, okay. Uh, it's not a radius. It's actually a J-shape. It's, it's a continuously changing radius. These guys did their homework on that crankshaft. It is stunning to me uh, how much everything has changed. You know, I got a beta engine, so so much has changed since the beta. It's uh, it's amazing in the uh, my pre-production engines. Um, we ran about, or they ran about 150 pre-production engines. Uh, end of June. Uh, I was there for that, and uh, we got, I think, seven or eight of them. Uh, so we're doing uh, our development on, on engines that are basically identical to production, our final development. So you're not going to be trading uh, your uh, L5P in for an LML? Other way, oh, oh. Well, you know, I'm, the LML is a pretty damn impressive piece. Uh, we're building, uh, the first week of July, uh, we made a buy of, uh, nominally 2,100 LML long block, long blocks built, built to our part number. Um, in other words, those are for our military, our pilot production of military engines. So we're going to be doing nominally 2,100 LMLs. We're at engine number 100 as, as of last Thursday. Uh, and that um, gives us a little cushion to get the L5P totally dressed, uh, totally worked out, because um, we're changing the lower sump, you know, the, the crankcase, the lower crankcase, which is aluminum, the oil pan and all that jive changes, uh, and the as does the uh, flywheel housing. You know, it's got to be... Uh, yeah, to uh, fit up in the SAE Oshkosh. bolt pattern. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. The customer is Oshkosh truck. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that was some, that was some great information, Gail. And after one more quick word from our sponsors, we're going to be right back to talk a little bit about dinos. We're breaking new ground in the turbocharger market with our Stealth series. The Stealth 64 is a perfect replacement for any stock turbocharger on any year Duramax. The 64mm compressor wheel adds at least 80 rear wheel horsepower on a stock fuel system while maintaining stock drivability and excellent spool up. The Stealth 64 also helps maintain lower EGTs under heavy loads, especially useful for you guys pulling. If you're looking to upgrade or replace your stock turbocharger, Check out the Stealth 64. Perfect balance between power and drivability in a drop-in, stock-appearing turbocharger. For more information, check out DuramaxTuner.com or give us a call at the office at 815-568-7920.
All right, and we're back. Uh, me, Nick, and Danny are here talking to Gail Banks. We've been through a plethora of great details about diesel, about the L5P. We've really got a chance to dive into it, uh, viscous dampeners and all. And we're back, Gail, to talk a little bit more about dynos. And, Nick, I'm going to let you go ahead and dive in right here and kind of get started with framing up what we had some questions about. Yeah. I mean, okay, I- Nick, as you get into this, yeah. um, bear in mind, guys, there's a boatload more L5P, uh, the whole upper end and injection system and all of that. Uh, that yeah, I mean, uh, we're you know, probably going to are... reserve it for another time. Uh, but um, there's much more on L5P uh, to talk about. So let's talk dynos. Let's talk dynos. Yeah, so let's. The ba- it suffices to say that the basement of the L5P is a beast, and the top end. I think we can leave that as as bait for our for our next one. I mean, there's I like there's, there's a lot more to talk about there. I like it. Well, and I'll know a lot more about modifying it. Uh, I put I put it on my Facebook. Uh, I think it's Gale Gail Banks Turbo uh, or Banks Power. Banks Power. Uh, there's two That's of the one. Two, we've got two Facebooks. I put I put up some photographs of a uh, prior. Um, probably an LMM cylinder head and the L5P head, I'm just looking at the intake ports. It's mind-numbing, mm-hmm. the difference in appearance of those things. So yeah. th- enough of that, though. <laughs> yeah, no, we're <laughs> That's we're a whole other episode right there, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, last time we last time we spoke, Gail, we, we kind of went down a little rabbit hole about the, the mad versus bad, about, you know, what what is the story... What's the true story that the dyno test tells? And, you know, we there's a lot of information sources out there, be it the forum or magazine pages or you know, uh-huh. videos, YouTube, whatever you want to look at. You know, we've got a lot of um, listeners to the podcast and uh, viewers on our YouTube channel who you know, don't have the experience that we have uh, operating a dyno, seeing, mm-hmm. you know, seeing how a dyno works, seeing what the inputs are, what the outputs are, what the variability is. Um, you know, really understanding what goes into a test and what goes into designing a test. And I, I know I read through, <laughs> I read through the forums and I watch YouTube videos and I see dyno tests. And I mean, eighty eight times out of ten, I, I, I just cringe. I, I have a, I have a hard time watching that stuff. It's, it's just, uh, I feel like the way the way the dyno movement is going is a, it's a trophy. You know, it's a, it's a trophy number, and the uh, the tool and the ability to use the tool to really define the the potential of the engine in terms of not only power but reliability um, is not it's not being spoke to. Well, I, I would agree with that. The, 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 here's the deal: the dynamometer is supposed to be a tool to develop an engine or an engine and powertrain if it's a chassis dyno. Uh, for a specific use. In other words, if you're going to do a truck pull, um, then you want to duplicate that load and the RPM change uh, and, right, and maybe even the gear change, if, if you make a gear change. Um, I don't think many guys do. The, 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 the point being, the dyno is, is a test of what the engine or vehicle might do uh, 
when you go out and compete with it. Yeah. Uh, the dyno is not, in and of itself, a test for a dyno. In other, in other words, what we what we see at the fairgrounds or wherever is a guy coming in in with a a dyno built into a semi uh, trailer, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, or a pull along trailer or a fifth wheel or whatever the heck it is, which is a big rolling uh, inertial weight. Uh, in other words, you put the drive wheels on top of this, hopefully four or five foot diameter roller, um, which roughly, not doesn't even roughly approximate the surface of the earth and the flatness of the surface of the earth. But these guys only run a run of two or three seconds. Uh, it, it isn't an off-idle run. They get the thing up, they get, they get the thing rolling at so, some speed, and then they nail it. There's yeah. no load control on it. Uh, in other words, it's, it's you just accelerate this big drum, this big inertial flywheel. Uh, and the rate of change of the speed, uh, by measuring that, you can compute the power required to, to make it change speed from one speed to another as you accelerate uh, the vehicle. But it never stops you and makes you cook at any particular RPM. It never duplicates duplicates anything uh, that is directly proportional to the vehicle because the weight they're accelerating is nowhere near the inertial weight of the vehicle. Yeah, exactly. So it's, 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 it's just a common thing that, that guys can get on and accelerate and compare the power yeah. over a two or three second span. Well, let me play devil's advocate here, gentlemen. Okay, right, Mr. Two Dino Experts. If I go to the fair and me and Danny both bring our trucks up Dan- to the same Danny dyno, and I. Thanks for joining the Please episode. Yep. Danny and I go to the go to the uh, dyno. He rolls five hundred. I roll six hundred. My truck makes more power. But yep. I don't care about anything else. Like if I'm at the dyno, I'm at the dyno. Like I I don't understand what uh, breaks or or why the inertia dyno would be a problem. If I'm there just to measure the peak power of the truck, yeah, aren't mm-hmm. I getting that? So did you build your truck? Under what circumstance, Paul, do you use your truck to accelerate from 60 to 120 in three seconds? <laughs> oh, okay. I, I mean, I guess I, I guess it, the only scenario would be on the dyno. Maybe a burnout? Yeah. Maybe? It yeah. wouldn't even... 60 it, to 120, it, it, yeah. If, if the inertia of the dyno and the inertia of, of the truck, the mass or weight, matched, then it, then it would probably be a pretty close comparison to accelerating the truck on the ground. Uh, but my point is, I use a dyno to develop a racer or a marine engine or a military engine. And then you go out and you race somebody. That's the end result of the dyno testing. It's not a te- test. For a test's sake? Well, it's like you're aware there's competitions now. Gail, Gail Banks is calling out all the dino queens in the country right now. 
I, love I can't it. say what I'm thinking, <laughs> but it's like it, it's like a oh a pissing contest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> was it dick measuring all, all contest? Right, Is uh, that what we were alluding to? Could we just say that? Yes, that's what we were getting at. All right. You got close. We're a little no, on the nose. Yeah. You're close, but no cigar. <laughs> I think what what Gail's getting at is that the, the test does show the horsepower number. It does okay. that, Hell right? Yeah. But it does. It yes, does it not. Yes, it does, and it's 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 like going to the county fair and hitting the thing with with a hammer and see if you can ring the bell. Uh, Me and Danny did that too, and I won that one too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, Danny, Danny and I did that, and I wasn't hanging out with you. You, you guys got to take this outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got into battles. You guys talk talk about no man's land and other other things that we've already talked about a little bit on the episode here today and i i'd love to i think it's kind of that. fun to go out and do what the guys do uh i want to bring it let's race now you know you just ran uh, whatever three thousand horsepower and went nowhere nowhere huh. <laughs> <laughs> he's laughing at him i love it i love it well it is it, it brings us back to that that conversation we have all the time on the show about form, you know, function over form, right? Like if you're going to build a truck, have a reason you build it. I think it's okay if you just want to build a dyno queen. I don't think it's cool, but it's okay. It's morally sound. Um, as yeah. long as that's what you're doing. Right, <laughs> right. As, right. Long, as long as that's what your your purpose is, then, you know, if, if that's your thing to put a horsepower number up, then, you know, that's what you're going to do. If if you're going to use it's that horsepower number to pull... Well, it's- it's, it's a good happen. and interesting contest. That's what it is. That's why the UCC but, is such a big deal because these guys are dynoing and then going out and competing against each other. So then they're validating everything on the dyno, I feel. Yeah. Well, I, th- I feel well, like they, the other competitions, they they measure the driver, right? They measure the truck as well. Like you got to have a truck to compete with, of course. But um, yeah. there's a lot of driver error that we see in big competitions. Well, let's not leave the crew chief out here. Right. Okay, we got the <laughs> transmission, rear end, tire. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of setup that goes into putting a truck down the track, and uh, you know, dyno numbers is a small part of that. Yeah. Okay. Different right. different strokes for different folks. Hey, that's why jelly beans are different colors. Something for everybody. <laughs> yeah. That's what so, my grandpa always told me. At the end of the day, the engine goes in a vehicle that that, that does something. Uh, that's much more challenging than two or three seconds uh, and going nowhere. So maybe, I, maybe I'm just more complicated. I don't know. But, I mean, you guys go out and you pull. Yeah, you know what oh, it's yeah. all about. It's, it's, now, it is, it, the person is part of the, the final contest outcome. Uh, I, I like that. I like I like I like to load the the gun for my driver. Uh, you, you know, I often argue you know, every record, and every championship, and uh, that we've won, whether it's offshore racing in boats or uh, drag racing or Bonneville or Pikes Peak or whatever it is, <laughs> diesel, gasoline. I don't give a damn uh, as long as it goes bang. And <laughs> and but. I always argue the chassis prep, the engine, all of that stuff, if you get it right, if you load the gun for your driver and he can do it skillfully, if you don't load the gun, he can't hit the target. 
That's my point. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless he's Parnelli Jones. And, and Parnelli Jones could drive junk and win with it. <laughs> but but I mean it. I mean, Is he really, sitting in I, the room with you, or are you just paying a compliment to the guy on the other side of the window? <laughs> he's buying me drinks tonight. Oh. <laughs> so, so, but what I'm saying is, uh, I love the full-blown aspect of it's the engine, it's the tranny, it's the axles, it's the suspension, it's the weight distribution, it's the intercooling, it's all the stuff, and it's the guy driving it. Yeah. Yeah, it puts the whole picture. Now you got something. Now you did something. You didn't just put up a number. You actually took it. I often wonder, those guys guys actually pull with those trucks, or what do they do with them? Mm, They're being forced to. The the ultimate call-out challenge, like Danny said, that's your your next event, Gail, by the way. Um, You know, it's a competition of dyno... Dino numbers, both horsepower and torque combined, and then uh, you know yeah. you have to race the truck and you have to sled pull with it. Not that those are the only two things you can do with the diesel truck, but it certainly forces a, a wider picture, wider lens on the thing. There's certainly the two. So coolest. let me. Where's the next one going to be? April twenty first through twenty third. Boom, Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Indy. Indy so baby. Uh-huh. That's right. I'm going to be there next week. <laughs> oh. Get your. What hotel. are you doing out in Indy? Yeah. Going to PRI? I, I'm doing the uh, Advanced Engine Technical Conference, Tech. I'm one of the speakers. Uh, it's put on prior to the PRI show at Indy. Cool. It's a three-day show. Uh, pardon me. It's a three-day uh, uh, series of guys that are in my business te- telling about uh, something new, new technical developments, what have you. Uh, I, I, I think uh, it costs about 500 bucks to attend it for the three days. And I'm just guessing at the price. It's around there. <laughs> and then guys like, guys like me come in and uh, provide the entertainment for free. <laughs> Somebody's making money Somebody's here. making money here. I don't know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's making money. <laughs> but this, is, uh, this has been going on. It's just, uh, I've done this before. It's a very cool thing to do. You were mentioned mad and bad, and and uh, you yeah. know, man is mad to me is manifold air density. It's what the job uh, the job of a turbocharger or supercharger or an intercooler is to make density. They're density machines. Mm-hmm. So and and um, so so I've come up with an instrument uh, and data logger. It's all in a two-inch gauge. It goes right in a gauge pod. That um, measures the uh, boost air density, which is the. Uh, let me let me tell you what density is. Density is a measure of the weight of air per cubic foot. Engines process cubic feet of air. In other words, they pump their own displacement every two revolutions of the crank. Um, so if you've got a 6.6-liter engine or a 6.7-liter engine, that's what it pumps every two revs. Throttles, superchargers, turbochargers, intercoolers are all control the density of the air, the pounds of air per cubic foot going through the engine. And you've got to have pounds of air to mix pounds of fuel with in your air-fuel ratio. So... 
if you're, if you're going to make power, you've got to have air density. Uh, you can also turn up the engine RPM, uh, and that'll process more air. But to a point, right? <laughs> it, it's all about it's all about how much air density, not how much air pressure you you can get into the intake manifold. So, and then the measure of your, if you will, supercharging system is called BAD, boost air density. So, ambient air density AAD is AD. Um, MAD is the manifold air density you, you got in the manifold feeding the intake ports. And BAD is the manifold air density minus the ambient air density. That's BAD. That, that's, that's badass, to <laughs> tell you the truth. The bigger that BAD number can be, the better it is. Uh, so a boost key gauge gives you about one-fifth of the information that you really need to know what the hell you're doing. In other words... it moves a lot, so I like to watch it. Tell him what he's missing, Dale. And so does this. Okay, okay. Yeah. As long as there's activity, you know, something shiny. Yeah, Yeah, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is your customer. (laughs) This is your customer, just so you know. (laughs) Do you like the color? I do buy buy fishing lures based on which one I think I would eat. I'm just just telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, uh, on the dyno, we we can duplicate a drag race run or we can duplicate a pass at Bonneville. Uh, whatever, uh, and we actually run the vehicle as, as if it's on the race course, and we measure the re- response of the boost air density. How quickly is it coming on? Um, we, c- we can measure also, you know, big intercoolers like air-to-air, uh, if the, the more aluminum you've got, the more thermal capacity the thing has. Uh, if it's also filled with water, a watered air, then you've got the thermal capacity of the colder water. Uh, so there's two factors in an intercooler. The thermal capacity of, of just the material and the water, let's say, that's in it. And then the other part is the rate of, of heat rejection. It, 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 it. So... When you start out with a cold intercooler, it's absorbing a hell of a lot of heat because you're heating it, and it's transferring heat to the air or to the water. Uh, you can watch all this happen uh, by measuring uh, boost air density. You can watch it happen. Uh, and, oh by, oh, by the way, uh, an intercooler improves density, but it reduces boost. You you lose boost through an intercooler. You guys are all aware of that, right? Oh, it makes sense. Yeah. So you put in an intercooler where you didn't have one before. I've done that back back in the day. And your boost gauge is hooked up to the intake man on the fold, and you just lost boost. It's like... <laughs> the, now, Paul takes it back. Now the boost gauge is <laughs> I totally <really>, would, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking intercooler, then. <laughs> So what's the intercooler doing? Well, it's increasing the air density. It's cutting the temperature, making more pounds of air per per cubic foot. That's what the the bottom line is. 
Okay, so let I'm me ask this, Gail. This Real quick, uh, let me ask this, Gail. So if I'm now watching my my bad sensor instead of my boost sensor, okay, and right. I'm, I'm seeing a problem, aren't my diagnostics more complicated because this is calculating more more potential factors, right? So there's more inputs. So that means if well, I if see a low bad number, say, I have a lot more yep. potential problems as opposed to like low boost. There's probably off the top of my head, there's probably seven or eight possible things that could drop your boost. It sounds like for my bad sensor, there'd be like 20 things that could drop my bad sensor. This little two-inch uh, gauge that I've done has a 1.8-inch flat screen uh, on it. And I, I can give you your boost reading and your bad reading and your ambient reading and your manifold density reading and whatever else you want. Yeah. So we run you're not losing one to gain the other is my point. Fair enough. It's badass. You got me. Yeah. So, I mean, Paul, you know, a <laughs> typical situation we run into uh, troubleshooting diagnostics is boost leaks. You know, we see boost leaks on probably 80% of the trucks we bring through here in dyno tests. We boost test every one of them. Boost leaks. <laughs> right. right. Just, uh, and the customer... It is kind of interesting. The, the boost leaks occur and guys don't even know it. No, they... It uh, never. cannot happen to me. Not my truck. That cannot but, happen to me. I just did a filter. Right. <laughs> that is yeah. my favorite response. Yeah, I, I tightened just, that clamp. Right. Um, but, I mean, you know, we would normally see our boost number maybe at peak. There'd be no fluctuation, right? So made 45 pounds before. Yep. It still makes 45 pounds of boost. Can't have a boost leak. Well, your bad number's down, right? So I like that. There's your They're indicator. Down. Boost yeah. is down and bad is down. Yeah. So here's the deal. With another sensor, we're doing a combined temp and pressure sensor. So you could have one before and after the turbo uh, and one before uh, your after tur- turbo would, would be your intercooler in and then intercooler out. Uh, I see a lot of turbo compounds where there's no intercooling between the atmospheric turbo and the high-pressure turbo. No intercooling at all. Yeah, we never Man, are they leaving a lot on the table, but they don't even know it. You could, there you, you go, you, you, could find, <laughs> you, could, you could find that. This is, if you're into, into diesel, this is the tool. I, I, I originally did this at Bonneville, Back in the 60s, I was hand-calculating what was going on. Uh, Then a guy named Dean Moon came out with an air density gauge that we all used uh, to jet our carburetors and screw around with stuff. But I started doing ram air in 1960, you know, cold air Mm -hmm. uh, rammed. I took a headlight out of my Studebaker, my 53 Studi, which ran... Back then, uh, 189 miles an hour, so it was a sea-gas record holder. <laughs> you know, and, and with a Chevy, a little small-block Chevy in it, injected. Point being, I picked up so much speed by going to ram air over no ram air, I wondered why, how, how did I measure uh, what that did? And, and I took the ambient air density gauge and put it in a box with a pipe leading to it from the ram air inlet and I was able to measure the the difference between ambient which I did just sitting there and then at 190 miles an hour 
and I picked up 0.61 pounds. This is the first time I ever uh, looked at density. I picked up 0.61 pounds. That was 24 horsepower. Holy shit. Uh, this is on an injected small block Chevy. And I just kind of went, I'll take that. <laughs> it didn't give me the 200 miles an hour I was dreaming about, which would have got me in the two club at Bonneville, which was a big deal in 1960-61. But my, my point is, I've been paying attention to manifold air density ever since. Let me play Every devil's damn advocate here. What, what about the mass airflow sensor? Mass airflow sensor is the other part of the, the equation. If you, if you increase your manifold air density, air density your mass sensor will, will, the reading will increase. So what do I get that, from my ma- what do I get from from your gauge that the mass airflow sensor is not you telling get, me? You, 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 the mass air sensor uh, doesn't give you all the elements. In other, in, other, in other words, what we're really sensing is humidity, pressure, and temperature. So we can we can tell humidity you're kind of stuck with, right? Unless you're water injecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're stuck with what nature gives you that day. But temperature and pressure, uh, did I drop the temperature or increase the pressure to, to get that mass airflow sensor to respond? So more granular. Yeah, I see what you're saying. More granular. Data yeah. Set. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's an active, it's like a batting average. In other words, a standard day, when you when you're dyno testing, you correct to a standard day. Right. That way you you can c- c- compare your engine dynoed in Denver with one dynoed in San Diego, California. Uh, but it, you're correcting you're correcting to a sea level day. This, that's the old uh, axiom. So, uh, in racing, NASCAR, ourselves, we use uh, J six oh seven. That's the SAE standard an older one. On that day, it's 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and the barometer is 29.92 inches of mercury, which is 14.7 pounds of air pressure. And, um, and the humidity is zero. No. When, if you dynoed on one of those dynos, uh, say the, the event was in Denver, I could give you the correction factor reading the the system in your truck up on that dyno that would give you the sea level power. Uh, hmm. So let's say you made twenty eight hundred horse horsepower with this a correction factor that would bring you to sea level. So now you've got a comparative. The thing the thing that's cool about MAD is a real good naturally aspirated engine. If you hit a hundred. You know, in the hundred uh, percent mad, that's pretty, good pretty damn good for <laughs> something you're driving on the street. Yeah. If if you hit two hundred and you're burning gasoline, uh, you know, at twenty pounds of boost uh, on any engine, you're not going to hit two hundred. Uh, you're not going to double your air density. Right. Um, due to the heating, if you're if you're not 
intercooling. I'm saying just a straight-up turbo. Right, right. All, all I'm trying to get at is it's like a batting average. Diesels, if you're from uh, 200 to 300, it would, would be the range of a street-driven hot rod diesel. Mm-hmm. If you get to 300 and you're playing baseball, you're pretty damn good. <laughs> and if you hit 400... You're a god. <laughs> and, and the same thing goes with manifold air density. It's like 200 is respectable, 300 is, oh, my God, and 400 is, you're bound down to that. It's just <laughs> so. And you can, you can, unlike a boost gauge, boost gauges do not account for ambient air pressure. Right. So 20 pounds of boost in San Diego, San Diego, gives you a lower, uh, more air density than 20 pounds of boost in Denver, and especially 20 pounds of boost at the top of Pikes Peak. Yeah. Engines, when the, when the piston drops down the bore on the intake stroke, it forms an almost perfect vacuum in the cylinder. What you care about is any pressure above ambient. In other words... Manifold air pressure, MAP sensor, is very important, um, not boost. Yeah, if no. you're going to yeah. you me- get that sensor measure anything, you should be measuring <laughs> MAP. Uh, and all, all, I'm saying, all I'm saying is a boost gauge is terribly flawed because it's a gauge pressure. It's, it's a pressure above ambient. If your ambient is 14.7 pounds in San Diego... And 8.8 pounds uh, at the top of Pikes Peak, you add both those numbers at those locations to your boost number, and now you, now now you've got the number pressure number the engine really cares about. Mm-hmm. So the guys in Europe rarely talk about boost; they talk about bar or KPA or total pressure, right. starting from a vacuum. The boost gauge ought to be outlawed. <laughs> you know, use them, use them for measuring fuel pressure or oil pressure. That's where, where they belong. Uh, they belong in the 19th century. Yeah. They're Stone Age. So, so your gauge reports in what, it's a, just a percentage, uh, 100, 200 in a percentage? Yep. Okay. 100% is 76 pounds of air per thousand cubic feet, by the way. So... For you, the air-fuel guy, is you can predict your power output from the, from the uh, reading as well. Um, so in a gasoline engine, uh, 10 pounds of air is 100 horsepower. Uh, so I've got to calculate the diesel equivalent from my talk. I just realized that. Yeah, but Because the diesel-air-fuel ratio is different. I mean, if and you have so this if, gauge in... In a, and you're picking up cam, and let's say you got RPM and engine displacement, I mean, you, guys, you should be able to display a theoretical crankshaft horsepower number, assuming stoichiometric, or, you know, assuming... I intend right. Yeah. Well, if, if you know your power at any mad point, in other words, you go on a chassis dyno, <clears throat> yep. and you, you baseline the engine, uh, you measure the manifold air density, uh, you've got a starting point. In other words... Let's say you're reading a, a, a 200 uh, MAD, and you go to 300. That's going to increase your power by 50%. Right. 
Right. Actually, it's a little bit more than that because you you don't increase the viscous and frictional and thermal loss. But all I'm getting at is it's a damn good indicator of, of power, but you you need a reference power number. Sure. Once you've got that, I'm putting on the I've got four buttons on this gauge so you can put data in or take data out, and I got a little micro SD card slot in the face, so you pop it in, you data log data log all the stuff you want to data log. Not just mad and bad, but uh, everything. RPM, uh, throttle, throttle pedal position, whatever's on the CAN bus in your vehicle, sure. I plug into that uh, as well. So cool. it's a pretty cool little deal. Nothing like this exists. Um, I call it the I-dash. Little I, big D-A-S-H. Uh, C2I. Is yeah. C2I stands for command control and information. So nice. it's a pretty cool deal that we're using. We're using like a buddy of mine's building a a Volkswagen drag race car that that uses big block Chevy pistons in a Volkswagen four cylinder engine. You figure that out. <laughs> and he's way over a thousand horsepower right now, out of two hundred and eight cubic inches. And uh, after I come back from PRI, we're going to stick this system in his his vehicle for him to just to develop the turbo and the intercooler and the the boost response or or density response and all that jive yeah i'm off on a tangent we were talking about dynos um so bottom line there are three types of dynos there's the inertial chassis dyno there's a load capability chassis dyno which is the one i prefer uh because you, you can cook it, you can do accelerations. You can uh, actually, it's the best place to do fuel economy because the weather conditions don't change. No, no headwind one day, tailwind the next. The uh, traffic patterns don't change. What we do is we map it out. We go out and data log a driving profile of throttle position and acceleration, all that jive. We, we write a program for the dyno to duplicate it, and then every time you drive for fuel economy, it's exactly the same drive. And, and then what you do to adjust or improve fuel economy, you can validate. Dead bang. We've done it on Class 8 semis. <laughs> what would a fuel economy yeah. test be without some bias? I mean, they got to have the driver in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love I, it. I love it. I, it's really close to what they did at Diesel Power Challenge. Remember, yeah. Danny, we were talking to KJ, KJ about that, and they actually they had al- almost exactly what you just described, Gail, was for the Diesel Power Challenge <laughs> this past year. They put them on a dyno, they strap them down, and they have like a – kind of like a level, so there's two lines with a bubble in between it, and you have to give yep. your truck enough throttle to keep that bubble in between those two lines the whole time. So they change the load, they simulate the grade, all of that, mm-hmm. and that's actually how they came up with their fuel mileage test this year. And they They're said running it was super an emissions accurate. test. Yeah. yeah. yeah They're running an emissions. That's an emissions exactly. test. Okay. And you can drive fuel economy out of that. We created the same test for a Class A semi. Uh, there is no such test. But we got the aero data and the, and the weight of the vehicle and all that, and, and we just amped up uh, the emissions, uh, chassis emissions test for a pickup truck uh, to Class 8 size. And, boy, it's damn accurate. 
I got guys here who can drive that bubble like you can't believe. Uh, <laughs> really, I mean they're deadly, <laughs> deadly good at it. You go outside the lines, you you scrap the test. Oh, so but built into that is, is the fuel economy testing. We add the USO six, which is the um, you know we do the FCP federal test procedure. Mm-hmm. We do the USO six, which is much higher speeds and loads. Um, and there's one other uh, t- test that we also add in. So, so you got all kinds of driving conditions mixed in. You know, like you're pulling a grade with a heavy trailer, uh, like you're running high speed light, like you're pop- popping around town, that kind of jive. Yeah, I mean, bottom uh, line on this thing is that the the dyno with the brake on it, or with the ability to do these simulations, is far superior for our application. Oh yeah. I mean, you just you, yes. There's no drum out there that weighs. If you're really if you're really serious about developing a uh, an engine for any use, you're on the engine dyno. That that's where it, you can really exercise it. What happens on a chassis dyno is tire temperature. Yeah, uh, that's what we're always the roller, is you just the roller is the radius of the Earth is like four thousand miles, and the radius of the roller is like ten inches. So you're putting a pressure pressure wave in front of the co- contact patch. In other words, your your tire is really upset at the, the tread surface, uh, and the faster you go, the worse it gets. And the, if you run them, you can't run a 33 day test on a chassis dyno of full power. <laughs> uh, you, you you killed the tires about 30 minutes into the test. Don't tell me what I can't do, Dale. <laughs> we have a chassis dyno here, and well, it's I've Nick, so I don't care if it breaks. Literally got lugs laying on the back of my chassis dyno room just from, from people trying that. <laughs> well, you know you know what I did is I got two absorbers on mine. So mine's a, a 1,500-horse, 200-mile-an-hour, 33,000-pound maximum axle load. It'll do a lot. And... It's two big, like, uh, uh, electric power absorbers, and I air-cool them. I put huge blowers on the wall behind the dyno, and there's a, a total of 10 8-inch pipes, five from each blower, that cool the absorbers and the tires. So and we also watch tire slip versus tire speed versus roller speed. Mm-hmm. The two of those lines have to line uh, lay on each other all the time. It can't be slip. Um, and what's the other thing we do? Oh, yeah, we have an infrared uh, pyrometer. We're watching tire temperature as well. So we literally can, can run for days on a chassis dyno. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. I do a lot of motorhome and, and uh, work truck stuff beyond uh, pickups. You know, bigger stuff. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't think it. You, you, we we don't talk about it much, but uh, those big diesel pusher motorhomes, we do a lot of that stuff. Oh man, those guys a are a nightmare, them. though. Who wants to deal with them? No, I'm just kidding. Some of our best customers are those guys. You just got to give hey, them a hard time. You know time. what? You know what? You got guys out on the highway. Still, there's some World War Two. There's guys that went to Korea. There's guys from Vietnam, out there driving those things. And when they come into my shop, 
I can't talk to them enough. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You definitely marry, you you marry those customers. Yeah. I used to sell RVs. Yeah. I know That's all about That's where them. I get to meet the old vets and really hang with them. True it's story. It's pretty cool in my book. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I'm an older guy. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> that works so, so for dinos, there's all types, but they are, you can compare them. People say you cannot compare dinos. Yes, you can. If, if you dino, first of all, the load cell has to be cal- calibrated. The, the thing that reads torque has to be calibrated. Uh, and you have to honestly correct to the same standards. It's like when we did the deal with Cummins on, on that first uh, common rail, there wasn't even a common rail in a truck at the time. You couldn't buy it. Um uh, so, you know, we got lab engines that were worn out and rebuilt, you know, ring valve and bearings type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we went racing with them. They built one, a pre-production engine at 402 horsepower uh, with a 40 series Holset turbo on it, which they, they use 35s in production. Sent it out here. We put it on our dyno and we measured 404. We were within two horsepower of the guys at Cummins. Uh, we've also ha- had a similar chassis dyno comparison um, with a Ford 6.7 diesel V8. Uh, you know, that thing came out originally uh, with a lower power, and then GM came out with a Dur- Duramax and topped them. And Ford had a, a hole card. They already had a calibration and an emissions legality on a higher rating. So and then... then you could you could go to the Ford dealership ship and get a reflash and it would bring your power and torque up. You guys remember that? Oh yeah. So, uh, pickuptrucks.com brought a stocker six seven over here and uh, we dynoed it. They went to the local Ford dealer, uh, got the reflash. We dynoed that. Then they sent the numbers to Ford Motor Company. Uh, I didn't know about that, but <laughs> it was kind of cool because it came back through uh, com. Uh, a casual comment from, from Ford was, that's just the numbers we got, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, there's a comparison well, from our chassis you know, dyno to Ford Motor Company. <laughs> you're talking about two companies that If you that do take it right, it, it, is, it is comparable. Uh, but guys change the correction factor. They diddle the numbers and they give you readings, which are high in the sky. They make customers Uh, happy, Gail. I don't. Hell yes. (laughs) You know, I went over, I I, I went over to Danny and he dynoed my truck and I got 612 horsepower. And then, then I went to see Nick. I got 630. Went over to see Paul. That thing went went over seven. I I'm going to go to Paul. Seven, seven or, yeah, it's so you know, accurate of how it would actually so much, go. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. That's exactly how it works. <laughs> I'm just better at operating a dyno than the other hey, two is what I heard. I'm just happy to make some numbers. <laughs> there you go. Gail, yeah. it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I feel like we've gotten so much information and so much time out of you. Really, thank you so much from the Diesel Performance Podcast. For sure, man. For sure. It's been fun. I mean, I'm, I'm This is an enjoyable thing to do with you guys. Well, guys, this has been Paul Wilson. I'm Danny Voss. Nick Pregnitz. Thanks for listening.
The Diesel Performance Podcast is brought to you by Calibrated Power Solutions, home of DuramaxTuner.com. Calibrated Power develops emissions-equipped calibrations for a wide variety of diesel powertrains, including Duramax, Cummins, PowerStroke, John Deere Case, New Holland, and many more. For more information and the best customer service in the industry, check out calibratedpower.com or call 815-568-7920. That's 815-568-7920. If you'd like to contact the podcast, send us a message through Facebook or email Paul at DuramaxTuner.com or Chris at C-E-H-M-K-E at DuramaxTuner.com. Hey, thanks for listening. Your feedback is appreciated. Please rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, and by all means, let us know if you have any ideas for a podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you don't load the gun, he can't hit the target. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless he's Parnelli Jones. And, and Parnelli Jones could drive junk and win with it. <laughs> but but and I mean it. I mean, Is he really, sitting in I, the room with you, or are you just paying a compliment <laughs> to the guy on the other side of the window? <laughs> he's buying me drinks tonight. Oh. <laughs>